Today's TribCast is presented by the Texas Secretary of State. Know what you need to vote. Make sure you're registered and find out what forms of acceptable photo ID you can bring to the booth at votetexas.gov or 1-800-252-VOTE. And the Meadows Mental Health Policy Institute. The Institute presents the Engage in Excel conference, bringing together key leaders from across Texas with the goal of improving mental health care in our state and beyond. Register at engageandexcel.org. Texas talking, oh, what was that that you said? Texas talking, ah, gonna hoop upside your head. Texas talking, tell me who can you trust when Texas got love. Hey, this is Dave Leventhal, federal politics editor at the Center for Public Integrity, and we're this week publishing a six-part 25,000-word investigative series we're calling Abandon in America. Check it out. You'll find it at publicintegrity.org. And the Texas Tribune has joined us in co-publishing the first installment. It's a gripping piece about the little Big Bend city of Presidio, Texas. We hope you read it. Inexplicably, the Texas Tribune's Emily Ramshaw and Ian Mitra okayed this nonprofit news organization collaboration, even after having to had to work with me back in the day when we were all slinging ink together for the Dallas Morning News. For this, I'm grateful, as we at the Center for Public Integrity are grateful for the Texas Tribune's journalism. So, without further ado, enjoy this week's TribCast, and here's your esteemed host, Emily Ramshaw. Thank you. This is Emily Ramshaw here on Wednesday, October 17th with your Texas Tribune TribCast, our weekly Texas politics and policy podcast. I'm joined this week by executive editor Ross Ramsey. Howdy. Hello. Political editor Aman Bathija. Hi. Hello. And health and human services reporter Marissa Evans. Hi, y'all. We'll also be taking your questions via Facebook and Twitter, so send them our way. Uh, all right, folks. Last night was the second and almost certainly the last uh, Cruz O'Rourke debate before the midterms. I know you all tuned in, everybody other than Evan, who was apparently playing tennis. Uh, how did they do? I think this was a meeting of a Mack truck and a mosquito. I think that wow. uh, Ted, Cruz, I, I think Ted Cruz completely swinging. dominated him in this debate. Beto O'Rourke wasn't great on TV. He couldn't land a punch. He had some good lines, but couldn't land them. And Cruz, I thought, just dominated the thing. Damn. That's like the opposite perception of uh, my husband who was watching it, wow. who yeah. really like thought Beto O'Rourke was holding his own and was coming back with some good zingers. And, you know, I, I just didn't think it worked. They felt forced. Yeah, they felt really for it was. It's kind of like um, during the presidential debate cycle when uh, Jeb Bush was trying to have these zingers with Trump and they just were not sticking because it's not who he is and that's not who really Beto is and so I understand what he was trying to do but I agree they didn't land very well they weren't smooth they didn't like really hit you in the gut like it was supposed to I thought um the strangest moment was when O'Rourke uh brought up lying Ted Trump's mm -hmm. yeah, that, that that was the part that made me feel like this is forced this is a guy whose like entire campaign has kind of implicitly been we need to you know, move beyond the Trump era and be positive and work together. Let's and then, and not then he, attack. Yeah. And then, and if you're going to attack your opponent, that's one thing, but you bring up Trump's attack line just felt like bizarre. Yeah. I felt, I felt like, um, O'Rourke was of two minds kind of picking up on that. I mean, you could sort of almost see him arguing with himself about, you know, I'm supposed to deliver this punch, but you know, we were, we were doing this other thing. And I, you know, I thought the biggest mistake that they made was, by doing that, they were playing into exactly what Cruz wanted them to do. You know, he wanted to be in a position to say, see, I knew you'd go negative. And they did. And he did. And, 
you know, I thought it went his way. I think the best thing you can say from the O'Rourke campaign standpoint is that, you know, nobody watches these things. You know, most voters don't really tune into this. There's a baseball game on. There's all kinds of stuff. There's apparently tennis to be played. You know, all, all, all kinds of other, other things going on. I know. We were having a wedding anniversary dinner, and I was like, I turned on the TV, and my husband said, oh, we're going to watch the baseball game? And I said, no, there's a debate on, honey. Oh, so, <laughs> I yeah. look so I have much better to my like wife that. right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, I think this this theme of sort of going negative, you know, it wasn't particularly negative, but it is sort of the first time that we've seen Beto O'Rourke headed in that direction. Is that a sign of desperation looking at these poll numbers? I mean, we also saw him release a bunch of ads this morning that were, you know, sort of more along the lines of attack ads after saying he I thought he said he wasn't going to go that route. Well, I thought the ads this morning were actually a lot more effective than, you know, his his attacks in the debate because they were they were kind of wrapped in this more we're being positive and you know we're going to move forward and stuff but then making a point to say ted cruz is spreading fear and paranoia i think was the line um i just thought that worked a lot better in the ads um i think the whole reason for the switch in strategy i'm my theory is work doesn't even want to do this but that there are so many people second guessing his campaign now and saying he's going he's being too soft and too positive that you know, assuming he loses, there are going to be people saying, I told you so, you should have gone harder. You should have gone harder earlier. And so this you is can. his way of saying we're trying this and but you can't, you can't say that after. you can't play the game to build the argument for why you lost. I mean, that's that's no way to run a political campaign. You decide your plan, you stick to your plan. You know, I think the strategic problem or the tactical problem that they're in is that you don't let an attack go unanswered. And Cruz has been consistently needling him. We know we talked all summer about there was going to come a point where both of them were trying to introduce Beto O'Rourke to the voters who don't know him. And Cruz has, you know, been doing a better job of that than O'Rourke has. And O'Rourke needs to get some, you know, a little bit of identity in here. And, you know, I think, you know, wanted to show that, um, you know, there's a spine in there. And, and you know, it's not necessarily contrary to what he had been saying. But last night they just looked confused about it. I mean, they didn't look like, you know, they had a clear idea of how they were going to do that. And it was sort of like the, you know, Beto O'Rourke 1.0, Beto O'Rourke 2.0 fighting with each other. Right. I want to talk a little bit about what we've seen from him from the standpoint of campaign strategy. I mean, obviously there was like record fundraising um, this past week. We got the numbers. Tell us a little bit about what those showed and, and what that money is apparently being spent on. Uh, O'Rourke uh, reported spending, uh, raising $38 million, which is apparently a record for a Senate candidate uh, in one quarter. I mean, that's Rick Lazio, right? Yeah, and that was like $22 million. Right, ran against it wasn't Nord even Clinton close. Yeah. Right. I mean, this is ex an extraordinary amount of money. And none of it's self-funded, which is just incredible. Uh, right. And Cruz, who has been, up until this race was considered a really, really strong fundraiser, raised $12 million, which any other year would be considered really good. <laughs> right. Um, I, I, I think a lot of this has to do with just... Um, you know, what you what Ross is talking about, O'Rourke's strategy up until now, being positive and being an inspiring speaker, you know, that's worked really well for him and that's inspired people. And to give, you know, $10 or $20 or recurring donations. Uh, and I think it's also um, just a lot of it's also just people that don't like Ted Cruz really don't like Ted Cruz. <laughs> well, do we have any strong sense of what Beto is spending all this money on? I mean, I saw, you know, when these ads came out this morning and I was tweeting about them and a bunch of sort of prominent Democrats were immediately saying like about time, about time to see some of the, this sort of harder approach. Where's the, all this money going? There is some um, reports that suggest he is spending more on Facebook than any other uh, Senate candidate in the country. 
Uh, but and he's also clearly putting a lot on TV. Like those three ads um, that came out th this morning, they didn't come out. Uh, our own Patrick Svitek found them on a Houston on Houston media, and I'm sure they're going to spread to the rest of the state. Uh, but they've just they've ju they've just been all over on TV too. You could run wall to wall TV from here to the election and still have thirty million dollars left. You know, a lot of what they're doing is. Um, organizational work because the Democratic Party's infrastructure has eroded over these last 24 years since they've won a statewide election to the point where a candidate who wants to win and get voters off their couches and to the polls actually has to build their own organization. So a lot of this money is on the ground. I mean, we've seen, you know, as we've gone along, some of the email traffic, some of the conversations that are going on. And we'll find out on, I guess, starting on Monday when early voting starts, whether that organization really is a thing or whether it was a uh, you know, vaporware. Right. Uh, I mean, how can that money literally be spent to, you know, do you spend that money to literally get people to the polls? <laughs> if I can spend money to get somebody to knock on your door and say, hey, we've been talking to you all summer. We know you're with us. We need to get you to the polls. Get in my car. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's an actual thing, you know, right. and if you can, you can get enough voters to do that. They've got a giant gap to close. You know, the giant I, gap to close in the polls in, in terms of in terms of the number of voters. There's more Republicans than Democrats in, in these um in these general elections, usually like a three to two margin has been the norm over the last 10 years. It's about a million vote spread, sometimes a little bit less, sometimes a little bit more. It's a lot of knocking and dragging that, you know, you've got to get people to the polls and you've got to hope that Cruz's voters, if you're Beto, you've got to hope that Cruz's voters are um, kind of sitting at home going, ah, he's got this in the bag. I'm going to watch the ball game. Right. Right. Well, we also uh, woke up this morning to find that President Trump had watched the debate. What did President Trump think of the debate? Uh, he thought Cruz won. <laughs> so I guess he kind of agrees with us. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think he would have said that even if he didn't agree yeah, with yeah, us. Right. Well, Somehow. and I'm skeptical he actually watched the <laughs> debate. Right. Um, and he called uh, O'Rourke a flake, which I don't know about you, but I am really disappointed he didn't come up with a better nickname. Yeah, I, that was kind of, that was that was weak too. Yeah, weak sauce. Think, yeah, no. He also said he would be, you know, like basically disastrous if he were elected, right? I'm I'm kind of... I, I've been kind of wondering why Trump is even coming to Texas next week, because, you know, there are Senate races and House races that are a lot closer. And I think part of it is um, kind of the celebrity factor of like his relationship with Cruz, but also just O'Rourke is the biggest name in politics in the country right now, you could argue. And I think I think Trump probably wants a little bit of credit of defeating him. <laughs> yep. And I mean, is there just a sense that he wants to be on the ground in Texas? You know, he's been having these rallies in different places. You know, this is a place he feels like he has deep seated support. Just, you know, another opportunity to... He could hold it in Ireland and he'd get covered. I mean, it doesn't really matter. You know, I mean, wherever he goes, the TV cameras are. So he gets that. He was asked initially on this, at least the way it was reported out by Dan Patrick, who was, you know, a down ballot Texas Republican, you know, looking up and wondering what was going to happen to that race at the top of the ticket. And maybe we need some cover. And, you know, Trump announced in the middle of the summer that he would be coming to Texas to the biggest stadium he could find. I think he found like the fifth biggest yeah, one. Yeah, the biggest. But anyway, Sack I mean, check. you know, this, yeah. is, this, is, this is largely because the some of the down-ballot Republicans, notably Dan Patrick, said, hey, uh, come to Texas. We need your help. What should we expect from this rally? Where is it? When's it happening? What are the details? It's in Houston, which is interesting just because um, there are a lot of um, close races in Houston and uh there, there was some speculation he would stay away from Houston and Dallas, where the, a lot of there are a lot of close general election races, and you know more towards an area like College Station, where the biggest, I think, the biggest stadium is. Yeah, the biggest stadium uh, is Kyle, Kyle Field, Field yeah, right? Picking a yeah. place where you know there there aren't close races, a lot of close races uh, in the area. Um, so he's going to be in Houston at uh, NRG. NRG, NRG Stadium, stadium. It's where the um, 
Texans play. And from his previous rallies, it's going to be, you know, a long, at times rambling speech. Um, it's not clear if most of it will even be about Texas or Cruz. Um, I'm really wondering if he's even going to touch on his and Cruz's rocky relationship. Or make a joke about the fact that, you know, <laughs> Cruz went to on, on at the Republican National Convention, National TV, and didn't endorse Trump. And now Trump is coming to Texas to endorse Dude, Cruz. There's yeah, so many, there's so many things so to many be apprehensive about. Yeah, it's, oh, man. <laughs> I wonder if he's going to, you know, the races that are, uh, a couple of races there, in particular the race that John Culberson is in for Congress in Houston. I'm wondering if Culberson's going to be trying to hitch to this wagon or not. You know, he's in a, he's in a tough reelect race. It's one of the three or four congressional races in Texas that the Republicans are um, playing def defense in, mm -hmm. w even with incumbents. So, you know, could be something there. Yeah. Uh, Amon, a lot of these um, Trump rallies have been uh, difficult, if not dangerous, for journalists as a political editor. How does that play into your decision making over how we cover it? Um, well, the it, it, it's a little tough because uh, the reporters are kind of penned in in the middle of these rallies. They don't get to move around a lot in most cases. So, you know, this is one of the biggest political events of the year in our state. But, you know, the, ex the extent of how much we can cover it is limited because, you know, once we're inside, we can't do much. Um, but, you know, they're also these people line up hours ahead of time. So there's an opportunity there to really kind of hear Trump voters and talk to them and actually get a sense of are they here for Cruz at all? Right. Or, or is this all about Trump that they're showing up? Yeah. All right. Well, before our next topic, I'd like to thank two more TribCast sponsors, the Texas State University System, Texas's first university system with seven institutions spanning 700 miles. Learn more at tsus.edu. And the Texas Association of Health Plans Managed Care Conference, the largest of its kind in Texas, bringing together key health care decision makers. Register today at tahpconference.com. All right, Marissa. So from back in the day, way back in the day when I was a healthcare reporter in the legislature, there were all these questions over whether crisis pregnancy centers, these anti-abortion groups, could effectively win state contracts to provide reproductive health care. You know, they argued yes. Women's health experts said no. Conservative lawmakers won, and these folks started to end up getting contracts. Now we've learned through your reporting and others that one of the biggest names in the crisis pregnancy space, the Heidi Group, has lost its state contract. Um, tell us about what happened here and why this is significant. So last year when budget cycles were restarting, there was issues over how many people the Heidi Group had, or rather had not served. So they had been projected to serve in fiscal year 2017, like 50,000 patients, but they only wound up serving 2,300, which is very... Yes, a stark big difference. Very big. I was, I was right. just trying to say that was the best way to word this. A very stark contrast. Uh, and so, but, you know, but despite all these continued failures the Texas Health and Human Services Commission still kept renewing the contract and even renewed it for 2019 up until last week when they said, actually, we don't feel like they can come into compliance to even get the job done. So we're canceling it as of December. So it's, it's a crazy time. I mean, that's pretty big. And it's not just the contract. Mm -hmm. I think I also saw you reporting that they're raising questions about, you know, mm -hmm. about the billing practices. I mean, is there some yeah. investigation? Yeah. So the Office of Inspector General is investigating the Heidi Group for about $1.1 million um, in weird billing billing practices that they had. But right now that they the Heidi Group is supposed to pay back a little more than $29,000 to the agency for things that they weren't apparently supposed to bill for. That's, that's so. relatively small in, the, in right. the shadow of the whole contract, though, right? right? Exactly. Exactly. 
So explain, I mean, what are the sort of, first of all, I'm surprised that with a Republican-led legislature, Republican governor, obviously, you know, huge anti-abortion sentiment in the state house, that they've even made the move to pull them out of compliance. I mean, that seems like politically a pretty big move. It, it is. And I mean, it's funny, depending on who you, who you ask, all of the reproductive rights groups are just basically having a small field day in their email and <laughs> mm -hmm. news releases saying, we told you so, we knew this would happen. I mean, everyone is very over the moon about this. Right. Um, but, you know, it, it's interesting because HHSC has had a lot of trouble in last year, over the years in general with contract management. And so this, to me, could be a step in the in a direction where they're saying, you know what, we realize this isn't working and we're going to do something about it. Because a big question everyone has is, if they were failing last year, how, why did you renew the contract again? You know, and I guess they wanted to give the Heidi Group a chance, but what's crazy is they were supposed to serve even more clients in this new contract that they were recently renewed for when they could barely serve 10,000 they could. <laughs> right. So. Yeah. So these this group, um, if you know, if a patient visits them, they're kind of coached on. Um, mm -hmm. I guess what are they? What so, are they? What are the services uh, do they get? Right. Right. So the idea is that they're going they're going to steer you away from getting an abortion. Alternatives oh. to abortion. <laughs> right. Um, so no, under this particular, the two contracts they were canceled for was the Healthy Texas Women Program and the um, Family Planning Program. So neither offer abortions anyway right. under the under the programs. But with the Heidi Group, you know, they're really going to try to say, you know, there are other alternatives. You can do more with this. We're going to give you the resources. They're going to provide services like birth control, things like that. Um, so that's what they're supposed to do. But the problem with these centers has, among reproductive rights groups, has been, you know, this idea that they're actually lying to patients in some form or fashion about the risk of abortion, about the risk of, you know, birth control even, things like that. So that's always been the big issue. So that's why when they were initially told, okay, you can be part of this program, we'll give you money to go serve these patients. That is why everybody was up in arms about having them be a part of it. Because it's like, what are you really telling patients? But that's not what bounced them. What bounced them was they weren't doing the work that right. they said they would do in the mm -hmm. contracts that they got. I mean, you have an ideological decision mm -hmm. and these guys won mm -hmm. and their side won. And they say, okay, go do what you were going to do, you know, go forth and mm -hmm. do your thing. And they only serve what 5% or less than 5% of the people they were supposed to serve. Have, have you heard any sense of, are these groups not serving enough people that they're supposed to because they can't draw enough interested patients or? I haven't heard that. I mean, the, what I've heard is, you know, it, it took them a while to get started. It took uh -huh. them a while to really get in the groove of being under these two programs. That's what I've heard from my reporting so far as we were kind of follow up. But um, it hasn't been necessarily like the, the drawing in patients part. Uh -huh. Though, I mean, it has been said, you know, this wouldn't have happened if we still had Planned Parenthood in either of these programs. Mm -hmm. So that's been the main sentiment I've been hearing. And the the Texas Observer hat tip was the mm -hmm. first to report this. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, all right. So meanwhile, Marissa, you had another great story this past week about some troubles at Adult Protective Services, the state agency that's meant to look after the elderly. Um, there's been so much attention on child protective services in recent years. What does has that meant for APS? It's meant APS has been on the back burner, basically ignored, um, arguably by the legislature, by the public. I mean, 
the media even. Um, just not the media. Not the media. I know. I mean, I went on this ride the along. Lamestream. You're right. <laughs> I went on a ride along in Houston in June. And when you really talk to the APS, APS caseworkers, they say, you know, Child Protective Services got $12,000 raises. We have not seen a raise in a very long time. Um, you know, you have people who are leaving the agency because they can't handle not only the emotional toll, but the lack of pay and the lack of kind of moral support that they're looking for right. from the legislature. They're yeah, basically financial saying, support. Yeah, yeah, CPS. heck with your morals. Give me money. Right? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, is there a sense of sort of CPS is getting all of these upgrades and we are still stuck here oh, with absolutely. no improvements? Absolutely. And when I talked to the APS commissioner, Kazeli Wold, he said, you know, the big issue right now is kind of trying to keep that morale up. And he, he what he's, I asked him during our interview, I said, you know, how are you doing that? How do you justify having someone stay in this position when the person across the hall from them is making $12,000 more annually than you are. And he said, you know, I try to tell them look at it as a positive because that means because CPS is seeing such great results right now with lower turnover, all that's all lower caseloads even that this is a chance to show the legislature, you know, look what happens when you invest money in these areas. So he's seeing it as a positive, but caseworkers are kind of like I wouldn't do this job. Yeah. Is anybody, <laughs> is any, are any of them crossing the hall? I mean, are any of them oh, saying, yeah. I'm out of APS, I'm mm -hmm. going to CPS? Um, when we actually asked for those numbers, it was at least like 27 people in right. the last, last year, almost two years, have actually transferred from CPS to APS. Right. And of course, yeah. APS to CPS. APS to CPS. APS to CPS. Yeah. I'm sorry. Right. No, no, not the other Same parking place, 12,000 more a year. That works. Yeah, yeah. right. And yeah. you get to work with kids versus, you know, well, in the working with the elderly. People, well, yeah. Yeah. people like you, Ross. I was really loving it, not me. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, well, before we move on, I just want to clarify one thing. Um, the uh, rally that we were talking about, the Trump rally, is at NRG Arena, not NRG Stadium. We have been corrected. We said NRG Stadium. Uh, NRG well, Arena. At least, at least we know the people at NRG listen to the <laughs> right. podcast. <laughs> yeah, right. The NRG Arena holds 8,000 people. So just okay. FYI. For anyone listening, anyone planning <laughs> to attend. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, all right. Um, Ross, I want to talk, since we have you here, about the hot list. Uh, Texans will start early voting in one of the most watched midterm elections in the country very soon, Monday. Uh, tell us, you have this list that sort of ranks races by hottest, hotter, hot. Right. Right, Tell, just, you know, Yes, I ho only, however I, I'm feeling about it, you know. Yeah, exactly. I really only want to know who's on the hottest list. The You know, the, the hottest list is the, you know, really the seats that are getting either the most attention, as in the, like the U.S. Senate races in that list, um, or that are the most likely to flip. You know, there's some races where, it, you know, like the Dallas County races, Dallas County is a really interesting sort of um, science experiment, political science experiment this time. I don't think Texas gets a blue wave, but Dallas County could get a blue wave. And it's because of a combination of things. Lupe Valdez, who's not doing particularly well in the governor's race, has nevertheless won four countywide elections in Dallas County. She's a known name. There's a busy DA's race there that's going to draw people out. There's a congressional race with Pete Sessions. There's a Senate race with Don Huffines. And there are five or six uh, seats in the uh, Texas House that Republicans are holding seats in a undeniably blue county. So a lot of stuff could happen up there. So some of those seats, you'd have to say, if the Republicans hold on to them, that's kind of a hat trick. So those kinds of races go automatically, you know, or quickly into the into the red part of the list. The so list the is red, three. orange, uh, yep. and, and um, yellow. yellow. Yeah. I should have brought the list with me, I guess. Yeah, it was um, the Rinaldi Johnson race. Yeah, Rinaldi uh, Johnson. Um, Statehouse yeah, race in Dallas. Right. Area. Both of those are, um, you know, uh, Rodney Anderson's race. 
is one of those. The seat that Cindy Burkett left open to run for the Senate um, is one of those races. Uh, there are a number of those that go into that list just because you look at the atmospherics, you look at what's going on in the county, you look at the candidates, and you're going, you know, this is going to be um, contestable. One of the races that's on the list, it's not in the red part of the list, but it's also in Dallas County. It's another one of these districts. It's held by uh, Victoria Neave, who's a Democrat, but it's a seat that you know could go either way depending on how the winds are blowing. And so you know she's you know has to be considered on the list. Some of them, you know, I think the U.S. Senate race is probably not a race that you would list as a probable flip, right? With a nine even, point spread, or, or even yeah. a likely flip, right. but it's clearly the race, and yeah. so it's hot in terms of you know just getting a lot of attention. The results in that race, and the attention in that race, and the turnout driven by that race are going to influence everything else on the map, right? So, a couple other races like that that make the hot list, but I was wondering why are two statewide: the Sid Miller, the Agriculture Commissioner race, and Ken Paxton, the AG race. Is it just because those guys have been in? Their own versions they're, of hot water. They're down in the yellow, and they're and that's exactly right. They've been in their own version of hot water for different reasons. You know, Paxton has faced and faces uh, some criminal indictments that have not yet gone to trial, and is running against Justin Nelson, um, a Democrat, former um, clerk to Sandra Day O'Connor on the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, you know, a credible opponent. Um, it's a Republican state. It's probably, you know, you'd have to handicap that as a as a Republican seat, and things are going well for the Republicans above it, but Paxton has some vulnerabilities that other statewide incumbents don't have. Sid Miller might or might not. You know, Sid Miller has been in the headlines a lot. People talk about him a lot. You know, there's an argument to be made that he's been, you know, uh, kind of a Trumpian statewide official here. But there's also an argument to be made that, you know, the Sid Miller that you're reading about in the headlines is the same one that you knew about when you voted four years ago. So he may have be he may be self-inoculating. It's on there really just because if the Democrats were to win statewide races that haven't necessarily been on the radar, those are the two they'd win. They're also, I should say, at the bottom of my list. Right. At the bottom, meaning uh, the least hot of the hot races. Yeah. 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 Well, somewhere in the middle, uh, Amon, maybe you can weigh in on this, is the MJ Hager, John Carter race and the Gina Ortiz Jones and Will Hurd race. Those are races that have gotten a lot of attention. They aren't on the hottest of, of Ross's list. They're sort of somewhere down in the middle. Are they not as competitive as some folks had been suggesting? Well, the New York Times has been doing this fascinating experiment where they do live polls and you can like watch as fascinating and mind-numbing yeah, as you like, watch. Well, yeah. and you can watch them like have to call 10,000 people in a district to get just the 500 they need to figure out what how a district is right. leaning. They did both of those districts, I believe, and both of them it's not even close. The Republican incumbent's going to easily win. Yeah, there there are races that are, you know, on there for different reasons. The herd race is that's the only swing district in Texas and that's environmentally, you know, the political environment there is dangerous for whoever the incumbent is, whether it's a Democrat or a Republican. Hurd has held it, and he looks like he's uh, moving, um, he's broadening the distance with Ortiz Jones. And that's why that's in the yellow instead of the red. The Carter race shouldn't be on the list at all. Uh, MJ Hager has run a viral campaign. She's, you know, um, completely outperformed. And Williamson County in particular is getting some bleeding blue. It's been a red county for a long, long time, but it's getting some blue bleeding up from Austin. And uh, there are a couple of Texas House seats up there and this Carter race where um, the demographics politically are changing. All right. Thank you, Ross. Uh, all right. Amon, can you fill me in or give me the Cliff's Notes version on this sort of complicated story of what happened in Waller County this past week involving a Mike Siegel staffer and Prairie View A&M? 
Uh, so Prairie View A&M is historically black college in Waller County, has had um, the, the, the students at the college and the county have had this like contentious relationship going back decades involving voting rights. Right. It seems like there have been a history of voter suppression efforts around that campus, like, and right? I, one of those cases even went to the Supreme Court. Uh, mm-hmm. And recently there's been an issue of um, the students, uh, they were told they don't get their own individual mailboxes or addresses at um at uh, Prairie View A&M. So they were told in their voter registrations to just put this like generic address as their address. Use one of two, right? One of two. And the problem is apparently that puts a bunch of the, a lot of the students in the wrong precinct. So those two addresses that are campus addresses are in two separate precincts, which like in theory would really water down the sort of campus vote. And so, so yeah, so Waller County seemed to imply that these students are going to have to put change of dress forms in. And there was concern of whether it would go in in time before the election, whether they'd be allowed to vote, whether their vote would be counted. And Mike Siegel, who is running against um, uh, Congressman Mike McCall, uh, sent a staffer to uh, Waller County to deliver a letter like, you know, saying they're outraged at the situation and that they have to let make sure these students get to vote. And there seemed to be some sort of contentious a contention over like what happened, but the staffer ended up getting arrested, uh, and he was held. F- I don't. I think it was just for a few hours. Yeah. But uh, just the optics of like delivering a letter to complain about a voting rights issue and getting arrested uh, made it kind of a national story. He, uh, I think Siegel and maybe even the staffer were on MSNBC like later that night. Yeah, I saw everybody on MSNBC. Uh, what has the Secretary of State's office said about this? Because it, I guess it turns out that this is resolved for the students, correct? Yes. Uh, Waller County ended up putting out a statement with Prairie View and I think possibly with Mike Siegel too, all kind of saying the students are going to get to vote and they're going to be given the chance to um, uh, put put a change of address form, uh, but that could be after they vote. And there's also um, discussion of expanding early voting, which was only available on campus for a few days out of the two weeks early voting period, which just seems nuts to me. Um, so it seems like this is the attention on it has helped uh, kind of alleviate the problem or at least cleared up the confusion. But does this guy still have an arrest on his record? I believe he was let go and I I don't know if the charges actually Yeah, I don't know if they actually charged yeah. him. I yeah. mean yeah. I think they so held him and they uh, held him for something, but then he was let go. Yeah. Oh, so I don't gave him a talking to yeah. gave him a talking to and gave the campaign a lot of uh national right. TV airtime. Well, and, and gave him what apparently they were trying to get across in that <laughs> yeah. letter. You yeah, know? Right. So exactly. hey it worked. You know? Exactly. All right, folks. Well that's all the time we have. Uh, if you listen listen to the Tribcast, I bet that you will love our daily audio brief, which is a quick update on the day's Texas news on your Amazon Alexa or Smart Speaker. You can add the Trib's morning brief as a flash brief or listen to it on your favorite podcast player. Thanks, as always, uh, to Shiny Ribs for years and years of music. We're going to be changing our music next week, so get excited. Top secret, you'll find out next week. But we are so grateful to Shiny Ribs for being an ally of ours for all these years. Uh, We also want to thank the Texas Secretary of State, the Meadows Mental Health Policy Institute, the Texas State University System, and the Texas Association of Health Plans, our Texas, 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 Texas sponsors this week. Uh, On behalf of Ross, Mon, Marissa, and our producers, Michael Ray and Cassie. This is Emily. Thanks for listening. Texas talking. Just can you hear yourself on there and just use that? Yeah, that's it. That's what I'll do. Yeah.